Inspiration Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. And if you couldn't tell from the readings, we're going to talk about resurrection, which we're pretty much doing every Shabbat because every Torah portion, it's, it's some sort of prophecy of the resurrection. And that's good news. That's very good news. In fact, that is the good news, right? Amen. That there is a resurrection. So the Torah portion is Vaira, which means and appeared. And when it's all said and done, where would we like to appear? I'd like to appear back in the garden. <laughs> Just pop in, slide in, walk in, fly in. I don't know exactly how it happens, but I would like to appear back in the garden. And I think that's pretty much what this Torah portion is teaching us, even with Ishmael. Ishmael had a little resurrection of his own. Have you ever noticed that there's a parallel story there? We didn't read the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, but even Ishmael, he had his own resurrection. So there's, there's a plan there. There's a place of life to come back from whatever doom that you think you've been sent to. So let's look at Song of Songs, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, just to review our text. It says, King Solomon has made for him a sedan chair from the timber of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its covering of gold, and its seat of purple fabric with its interior lovingly inlaid by the daughters of Jerusalem. So we've unpacked a lot of those phrases so far. Let's keep looking at the gold, the covering of gold and the daughters of Jerusalem, and the idea that these things were lovingly done. This gold inlay, uh, it even refers to it in the sense of paving something, weaving something together, preparing in that sense, assembling something. So the daughters of Jerusalem, they're doing what they're doing out of love. They love the commandments, for sure, because if we're talking about the holy ark, what else is in the ark but the commandments? How can you prepare the way for the ark? How can you make a lovely dwelling place for the presence if you don't love the commandments? You would be miserable. You know, Jimmy was talking about, you know, not getting up in the morning and thinking, you know, well, so-and-so at work's going to be there. They're going to make me miserable. You know what? We need to get up in the morning with the sense like, I'm going to work and I'm going to make them miserable. <laughs> just, I'm going to have the presence of Adonai around me. So they're just absolutely miserable. And they tend to avoid you when you walk in with that attitude. So these daughters of Jerusalem, what's going on? It's also known as a, it can be translated as a canopy. Again, we're talking about this chariot that's being described here of the Mishkan. And at least within the, the rabbinic tradition, that particular verse is considered proof that the Holy of Holies of Scripture is the Song of Songs. A lot of people like to read the Song of Songs as poetry, as something beautiful, but very few understand the Song of Songs. King Solomon loved to write in parables. He loved to write in symbols, euphemisms, and so forth. And so there's a lot of even play on words. If you can read the Hebrew, there's a lot of play on words. So 
as they're interpreting this, they're saying, well, this canopy was not what King Solomon made for himself. It's what he made for him, the Holy One. And it's, again, preparing a place for the divine presence to dwell, like the Mishkan. So they say King Solomon, as he's writing this, he's using this to help you understand this living Mishkan that's going to come up from the wilderness at the end of days with the footsteps of Messiah. It's going to be lovingly decorated by the daughters of Jerusalem. But what makes Jerusalem distinctive from, say, if you just say Zion, if you say Israel, the land, there's something special about Jerusalem. It's the seat of the Moedim. That's where you go to celebrate the three pilgrimage feasts. It's that focal point. So there's a particular highlight given to those who go up at the appointed times. This would be those who appreciate and who love, especially the commandments, to go up at the appointed times, which we'd also associate that with Shabbat. But Melech Shlomo, this is King Solomon, Melech Shlomo, that means the king to whom peace belongs. They're saying this refers to Adonai himself. And they say, not only does it connect you with how he decided to make peace with Israel. See, that wasn't an easy road. After the golden calf wasn't an easy road back for them. Moses has to keep interceding. And so they're given this Mishkan. Say, okay, build me this. Build a place for the divine presence. Because Moses says, we can't go anywhere without you. We're lost without you. What are we going to do without you? He says, make the Mishkan. Because all sorts of good things are going to happen to you as a people if you will come into unity and build the Mishkan together. So this Apirun that's referred to, this, this sedan chair, sometimes it depends on the translator. You might read five different translations and get five different translations in English of what Apirun is. It might be called a litter. It might be called a sedan. Some might call it a chariot. A traveling couch, I think, was one translation we read. But Apiron, it's only used one time in scripture. So it doesn't give you a whole lot of other scriptures to cross-reference and say, well, what exactly is this Apiron? Why is everybody guessing what it is? Well, it means to be carried quickly. And they believe that it, it comes from either para or para. You say, what's the difference? Very little. One letter. An aleph or a he, but just pronouncing it, they're going to sound the same. Ultimately, you're supposed to get the idea that, that this is a vehicle of some sort that is to be carried quickly. And Yeshua twice says that in the book of Revelation, as we're talking about the footsteps of Messiah, well, he says those footsteps are going to come quickly. Revelation 22, 7, behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. That's perfectly consistent with this being decorated by the daughters of Jerusalem who love what they're doing. They love the commandments. And then 22.12, he says, behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to reward each one as his work deserves. Right? So this is a time when rewards will be made. It's not just salvation. Thank goodness I made it in. It's okay. It's more than thank goodness I made it in. What did I build on that foundation of Messiah Yeshua? Because he's going to reward you accordingly. But he says, this is going, I'm coming quickly. If you're not ready, 
if you're not perceiving what's going on in the camp or you're not even in the camp. I mean, they, they formed a camp. Didn't mean you had to stay in it. If you wanted to go play with the Edomites a little while, you could. If you wanted to go be best buddies with the Amalekites, you could. If you wanted to go, you know, camp out with Canaanites, there you go. You don't have to stay in the cloud. Lots of people can separate themselves from the camp if they want to. It's not a barbed wire fence. It's a cloud. And you're welcome to walk out the same way that you're welcome to walk in if you would agree to lovingly keep the commandments. So for those who have decided to dwell in his presence, there's going to be reward. There's no indication that he's going to reward those who love living outside his presence with an eternal reward of living in his presence. Like I said, it doesn't mean they're not saved. It doesn't mean there's not a place of safety for them from death. But the reward is basically of what have you been doing? Okay, this is the reward of it. You planted this much, I'm going to give you this much. Yeshua told different kinds of parables. Some were of salvation and some were of reward. So the seat, it says, is of purple wool. We know purple is the, the kind of the middle color of the Mishkan. You've got blue, you've got red, but purple is unique because it's 100% red and 100% blue. So it represents Messiah. He's 100% heaven. He's 100% earth. You, you can't untangle that. And the seat itself is not uh, kise, which we would think of as a throne or a regular seat like you're sitting in right now, but it's a merkav. A kise means something that's more fixed. It's not moving around. Merkav is a place to be seated for rapid, agile movement, which makes it very consistent with it being called the, the traveling chair being called an apiron, something that moves quickly. And so now it's been called a Merkav. The seat of it is the Merkav. And it can mean a chariot, a riding seat like a saddle. There's no distinction, by the way, in Hebrew between one who drives a chariot and one who rides on a horse. It's all Rakav. So it's a riding place. It's where he rides. And so, you know, maybe in a few weeks, we can start talking about what does it mean when it says he rides upon the heavens? Because this is directly related to that. So the, the Mishkan is functioning as a kind of a chariot. And what we see in the encampments of Israel is a reflection of what Ezekiel saw with the four living creatures of the four chayot, because the four banners below reflect the four chayot, or living creatures, of the Merkavah, of the divine chariot. Like I say, I don't know that they moved as fast as lightning, but there was the reflection on earth of something seen above, which is very consistent. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth, it might look like rocks and dust and mountains and trees, but we need to see what was the reality of this promised land. What did it look like to Abraham? So the king is seated, seated in this Mishkan. And remember, the Mishkan is uniquely for the wilderness, even though it stood for a few hundred years in the land itself. That was never intended to be permanent. There was always an intention for it to become a permanent residence, the temple and the place where he would put his name, Jerusalem. But look, these people who are decorating this Mishkan, who love the commandments, they're already daughters of Jerusalem, and they haven't been to Jerusalem yet. 
Isn't that cool? I mean, if he's literally talking about the Mishkan, there are people who can prepare the way for that permanent temple without having ever yet set foot on the Temple Mount, which is good news for us, especially out here in the wilderness of the peoples. So the king is steering or driving the structure from that space. And it says, through the glory of God that rests between the two cherubim atop the holy ark, the Torah scroll written by Moses rests in the holy ark along with the tablets. The ark rests in the holy of holies. And again, it's saying this is why as we're looking at Song of Songs, we're in the holy of holies. So the inner side decked with love by the daughters of Jerusalem is thought to be those who labor in the study and the practice of the Torah, because the Torah is in that holiest of holy places. And they're seeking it as that which is more to be desired than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. And that's where we're going. We want to look at slaughtered gold today, which represents the three patriarchs and this promise given to Abraham. And of course, it does also represent the divine presence, which dwells in the Mishkan. And it dwells there in a heavier way than it does the rest of the camp. And there's examples in scripture of how that glory would be so heavy that the priest could not stand a minister. Again, if you can't stand his presence out there in the camp, what makes us think we're going to be able to stand his presence in the world to come? There's no preparation there. So we want to make sure that we identify as those daughters of Jerusalem. Okay, so we've got a fast-moving chariot in which the divine presence dwells. We've got these four encampments of the 12 tribes forming a kind of wheels uh, that can move in any direction. And that takes us back to a really odd statement that was made of Joseph. Remember once he's promoted to second in command to Pharaoh? Kind of strange language. And it's going to be the first time we ever hear this word Merkav for chariot. Uh, it says that Pharaoh had Joseph ride in his second chariot, Merkavat Hamishneh. And they proclaimed before him, bow the knee, Avrech in Hebrew. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. So we want to kind of set our mind like, okay, there could be two chariots being discussed. This might be a prophecy of two chariots. But then when Uncleos translates this, around the time of Yeshua, remember uh, Aramaic is the, the language that's commonly spoken in Judea and the Galilee. And so as Uncleos is translating this for Aramaic speakers, and of course we're looking at it, we have to make one more leap from to the, to the English. He translates Avrech, which is bow the knee as father of, of the king. Rech, which is Aramaic for king. And then Rashi goes back and he comments on what Ankelos did here. And he says it means a father and av in wisdom, despite being tender, rach, in years. One whose wisdom transcends his years. Really makes you think of Yeshua in the temple at about the age of 12, doesn't it? Everybody just marveling at how wise he was in his tender years. And then he says something really strange. He says, hey, mom. Don't you know I have to be about the father's business? Kind of like Joseph. He's minding the father's business, but yet he is a father to Pharaoh, which it makes us think, 
be careful when we look at words like father, mother, sister, brother. That popped up in our Torah portion today. Twice, Abraham tells Sarah, say you're my sister. Well, that's odd. And even this week, he, he really doesn't want to admit it's a lie. He says, well, technically, we've done that before. Well, technically, it wasn't a lie. It was kind of true. He's not ready to admit it's a lie. But if we understand that there's different ways of looking at the relationship of father, mother, sister, brother, son, and daughter, then we can say, well, he really was telling the truth because the relationship between Avraham and Sarah was not just husband and wife. They were brother and sister because they were all descended. We're all descended from the same person. Weird as it sounds, you really are either a brother or sister to your spouse. We all go back to Adam. Eve came out of Adam's flesh and bone. So she was kind of like his sister. We all came out of Adam's flesh and bone. We're kind of like his brothers and sisters. And so in that sense, it's not creepy at all, but it just shows you a relationship of humankinds to one another, which is also going to teach us again about spiritual relationships, being in unity. I mean, because if we think of even the camps of Israel, dwelling in unity, they were brothers dwelling in unity. Were they all literally brothers? Did they all come out of one mother and one lifetime? No, but they were descendants. So there was a, a unity there of the tribes. So was Mashiach, was King Messiah, was he a, a father or was he a son? We said, well, he couldn't be a father. We don't know if he had any children. Well, did he ever call his disciples little children? Does he call us little children? Does he say, allow the little children to come unto me? But that's the oddity of Joseph being mentioned as kind of the first person to go into a Merkav or a Merkava, a chariot, even though it's the second chariot to the king. And as Jimmy was talking about the Lula this morning, where he's talking about at Sukkot, when you guys were doing the, the circuits around the Bima, there's four species that are set aside for Sukkot. And they say that Joseph is the fourth. You've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then they, they add Joseph for some reason. You say, well, why would Joseph be the willow branch? He wasn't one of the three patriarchs. But they say he was so, such a close resemblance to Jacob, such a close resemblance to Isaac and Abraham, that he was considered like a firstborn. The firstborn is the one who is considered to resemble the father the most closely, not just in appearance, but in behavior. And so they add Joseph and say he was really just an offshoot of the patriarchs because his heart, his faith was so much like theirs. So they add him as a fourth patriarch, as the willow branch. So was he a father or was he a son? Yes. And that's why I wanted to set up here before we went back to 2 Kings 2.12 and 2 Kings 13.14. Twice, we see a reference here to the chariots of Israel. Uh, again, going back to Rekev, the Merkav, the Merkava, that we see the king coming up on, coming out of the wilderness at the end of days. When Elisha sees the chariot, remember Eliyahu tells Elisha, he says, you're not going to get the double portion unless you see me. You have to see me go. Well, now, did that literally mean, okay, Elisha, you got to be there the exact moment when I leave? Or does he say, Elisha, there's something you have to see when I leave, not just me leaving, 
there's something you're going to need to see if you're going to be able to operate in this spirit double. And we know that Elisha saw it because he got the double portion. He saw something. And what does he say when he sees this something? My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Eliyahu no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. So, yes, this is a custom when somebody passes away, when they pass into the realm of death. And, of course, we know that Eliyahu didn't die, but he was still crossing into that realm. So Elisha still divides the garment. Now Eliyahu's in that realm. I'm still in this realm, but I saw it. And he catches the mantle. He says, okay, now it's my turn. But then when Elisha becomes ill, it says, with the illness of which he was about to die, Yehoash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over him and said, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. So actually, Yehoash was able to see what was coming for Elisha, even though Elisha was going to have to die before his collection. So it tells you the norm is that you do physically pass away before you are collected by the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. In Eliyahu's case, special case. And you had to be able to see it. These horsemen of Israel are thought to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? Think back to the divine chariot. What did the encampments of the Israelites represent? Those wheels that could go in any direction without moving. Who were they descended from? They're descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're buried in Hebron as a profession of faith in the resurrection. It's believed that this is an entrance back to the garden at Hebron. In fact, the water from the spring there at Hebron was uh, channeled through aqueducts and so forth. It was channeled from there to Bethlehem, to Bethlehem, from Bethlehem to the Temple Mount for the high priest to immerse on Yom Kippur. That's how important the water was from Hebron. King David reigned first from Hebron. So Hebron represents resurrection. That's why Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rivka, and Leah had to be buried there because it was a scream through the generations that there is a resurrection. We have faith in this. If Abraham is your father, then you have faith in the resurrection. And Yeshua reminds the crowds of this because the Sadducees, remember, they don't believe in the resurrection. And he tells them, many will come from the east, the west, the north, the south. They're going to sit down at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. They're going to have a meal. And he says, you're going to see it from afar, but you won't be able to enter in. And think of the Lord's Prayer that we did. I mean, the, the Mismor de David that we did today. The Lord is my shepherd. That says, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Remember how the rich man could actually see Lazarus? It's like he was in his presence, but he couldn't cross. And that's what Yeshua tells the Sadducees. You're going to see all these people. They're going to come and they're going to sit down with the horsemen of the chariot, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're going to see it, but you're not going to be able to enter into it. So why this strange language? My father, my father. Why say you're my sister and do it twice? And then Isaac turns around and does the exact same thing to Rivka. He says, say, you're my sister. The, the language, I think, that follows where it says, so that I may live 
on account of you. I think that's our clue. There is something in this relationship to the sister that I may live on account of you. If we can relate to one another as brother and sister, then I will live on account of you. And I say, Abraham doesn't even want to acknowledge it was a lie in this week's Torah portion. He's trying to make it still true, even though it's a deception. So we've got Abraham and Isaac. They both say, say, you're my sister. Then when it's time for Jacob to come back to the land, to return to this land of promise, he calls in Rachel and Leah. And he consults with them. What should I do? And they say, go back. You notice the matriarchs are always pointing the patriarchs back to the land. Tradition says, had they sent women out as spies, Israel would have gone into the land the first time. (laughs) They will never give a bad report of the land because of what they represent. There's also speculation that Zilpah and Bilhah, his other two wives, are also sisters. That they were two sisters given as hand uh, maidens to uh, Leah and Rachel. So if so, that's a double sister thing that he did. Uh, the sisters keep coming up. I, I think statistically that's probably improbable that they would keep popping up like that. So what do they represent? We know Song of Songs is, is full of symbolism. Well, if we back up one book, the one King Solomon is more famously known for, Proverbs. Proverbs is Michelet, which means parables. And as you're reading through Michelet, you realize, oh, this isn't talking about literal people. These people are parables of spiritual things. The wise woman, she's a woman but she's actually also representing the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding. She's representing the Holy Spirit itself. So in this case, the woman, the wife, is representing the move of the Holy Spirit. And in this context, we see it's the move of the Holy Spirit moving in the lives of the patriarchs. And we hear that when Abraham is told, listen to Sarah. And he had a reason not to. He had listened to her once and got in trouble with Hagar. Well, When she is speaking according to the will of Adonai, she is the voice of the Holy Spirit to her husband. Or does it say the heart of her husband doth safely trust in her? You can trust the Holy Spirit. If she is speaking the word of Adonai to you, you can safely trust in that. If she's speaking a different word, not so much. But that doesn't mean you can ignore the next thing she says. Because odds are, if you have a godly wife, she's speaking under the power of the Holy Spirit into your life to keep you on the path. And that's what's so funny. Somebody brought up the dripping woman twice in the book of Proverbs, like how miserable it is to be with a dripping woman. Read the context. This guy's off the path. He is off the path of the commandments. So what does she become in his life? The dripping faucet. She's supposed to annoy him, irritate him until he gets back on the path, because that's what the Holy Spirit does with us. Once that word's in you, how comfortable are you getting off the path? Does it bug you? If you do, if you break a commandment, once you know the commandment, doesn't it bug you and drip on you and drip, drip, drip until you make it right? That's what she's supposed to do. But if she doesn't do it, that's when you're in more danger because he doesn't always contend with us. If you quit listening and turn away, turn away, turn away from her voice, then he'll say, okay, go your own way. And he lets you go. That's danger. You want her to be dripping as much as possible if you're off the path. (laughs) 
So, you know, a tree of life, we even did it with the eight sky. when we put the, the Torah scroll back, we sing she is a tree of life to those who take hold of her because it's the parable. A woman is the parable of the Holy Spirit of the Torah itself. She is a tree of life. It's him. <laughs> he, if you can't read the Hebrew, it sounds a little funny because he is he is like masculine in English, but he is she in Hebrew. So it's feminine. Now that does not assign gender. Okay, we're not saying God is a male, female, anything like that. We're not saying the spirit is male, female, anything like that. We're just using the language of scripture, which does have masculine or feminine, just like Spanish, for instance. But these parables in the book of Proverbs, parables of the Holy Spirit, but also parables of the opposite. You've got the adulterous woman, avoid her at all costs, still speaking in parables. So we've got a template, a father, a son, a brother, a sister, a mother. They may not be literal. It may not be the natural earthly relationship. We could be talking about a spiritual relationship. Because if we look at Song of Songs, four times he talks to the sister. Song of Songs 4 and 9, verses 10, 12, and then chapter 5, verse 1. He says, my sister, my bride. Now, that's just plain creepy if we're looking at it on simply a natural level. You don't marry your sister. That's not in the Torah. In fact, it's in the Torah. Don't do that. (laughs) Do not marry your sister. So we know it's not talking about a literal relationship in our natural realm. It's talking about a spiritual relationship. And again, if we go all the way back to the first couple, they were kind of like brother and sister. They were the same flesh and bone. If you look at your natural brother, you're the same flesh and bone. Your natural sister, you're the same flesh and bone. So they're married, but in the sense of all humankind, they are brother and sister. They go back to the same father ultimately, which brings us to the next verse. Song of Songs 311. It says, go out, you daughters of Zion, and look at King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of the joy of his heart. But we don't have any evidence that Bathsheba ever crowned Solomon on the day of his wedding. And even if she did, which one? I mean, he had more wives and concubines than anybody in the Bible. I mean, he had enough wives and concubines to last him till today. (laughs) I mean, it's just incredible. So which wedding? Which one of those would she have sanctioned? Unless, again, King Solomon is writing in parables, symbols, riddles, play on words. Which one of those marriages was worthy of a crown from his mother? Well, let's go back to Mount Sinai. Again, if we're talking about the place where the Mishkan was built, where things went really right, then when they went really wrong, then when they went really right again, we had a betrothal ceremony. And so Moses introduces these daughters of Jerusalem to their bridegroom. And we see the Shabbat become their betrothal ring, Shabbat representing all the the high holy days that they would observe as daughters of Jerusalem. But which mother would have awarded the crown to the groom at Mount Sinai? It even makes you think like there's no idle details in the Brit Chadashah in the New Testament. There's no, there's no idle details. I know some people tend to devalue. It should build up your faith. Look at the crown of thorns they put on Yeshua. What, what is thorns in Hebrew? 
Sin, Sinai, Mount Sinai, the mountain of thorns? Is this where he was crowned by his mother on the day of his wedding when he was betrothed? Well, it was a thorny situation at Mount Sinai. It was a thorny situation at that Passover. And think of Ishmael's mockery in this very same Torah portion, how he mocked and then how the Romans mocked and how the doubters mocked him. But let's, let's just keep using that template of Mishle or Proverbs, sister, bride. Then there's another relationship we can look at, and that's the mother, which we saw in the case of the matriarchs became a parable of the Holy Spirit, always guiding the patriarchs back to the land of promise, trying to get them in there because they know their descendants. They want them to inherit the resurrection, and they know it has to be done with the power of the Holy Spirit. That symbolism of the mother is not unknown to early believers. They knew about it. So let's think of it like this. We look at the Holy Spirit. At first, there's really just one branch, right? One piece of gold, beaten gold, and then they beat out six branches from it. So. You've got the Holy Spirit or the Ruach Adonai, but then you have very specific manifestations like wisdom, understanding, counsel, power, knowledge, and reverence. But they're all the Holy Spirit. They're one thing. They came from one place. So even, I mean, it's a chiasm. If you look at the number four, doesn't matter which side you count from, you end up back at four. Four is the number of leadership, dominion, rulership, governing. What was Judah's birth order? Four. And so if you wanted to know which direction the camp was going, assuming you couldn't see the ark or the cloud, where would you look? See what Judah's doing. Are they moving? If they're moving, if they're packing up, we should be packing up too. And that's why by the time of the Babylonian captivity, you've got 12 tribes that were there at least a representative number within Judah. Does that mean there's still not 10 lost tribes? No, it doesn't mean that. There's still some lost folks out there. In fact, even within Judaism, they're looking for a Messiah who's going to restore those 10 lost tribes. Nevertheless, there was a representative number among the tribe of Judah at the time of the Babylonian captivity. They knew who they were even up until the first century. Paul knows he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Hannah knows she's from the tribe of Asher. Not until the temple records are destroyed with the second temple do you kind of get like, well, I don't really know what tribe I'm from. So they don't know either at this point, probably unless they're a, a Levi or a Cohen. But there was a representative number. And so it's just like this. It's Was it one piece of beaten gold? But yet it represented everything out here. You can't break these branches off and make them work. Even in wisdom... Reverence is the beginning of all wisdom. They're not disconnected. Right? So Ezekiel 8, 3, and what are we talking about here? The mother. We're looking at the mother relationship. Because remember, these matriarchs were parables of the Holy Spirit. right? And the Ruach Haronai, it represents an authority like Abraham is told, listen to Sarah. You're going to have to drive out Hagar. Ezekiel 8.3 says, he stretched out the form of a hand and caught me by a lock 
of my head. And the spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court where the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy, was located. Right? There's a similar description in the gospel of the Hebrews. It's not in the canon, but the language of it is it reflects what was understood about this particular passage in the first century. And that passage says, this would have been Yeshua talking in the passage. He says, just now, my mother, the Holy Spirit, took me by one of my hairs and bore me up to the great mountain Tabor. See the similarity between the two passages, how in a Jewish mindset, the Holy Spirit was represented by the relationship of a mother. Sometimes she's nurturing and sometimes she's dripping. Sometimes she's letting you have it. And you, you would be better off on a rooftop than disobeying the commandments when she's after you. And that's what we pray for those of our loved ones who are still out there lost. Father, just annoy them with the power of the Holy Spirit until they're ready to get off the roof. Uh, also, remember the, the parable of the hand that was used there uh, as picking like Ezekiel up or taking a lock of his hair. The picture of the hand uh, taking Yeshua by a lock of his hair and saying, it's my mother, the Holy Spirit, that relationship. Well, it was also a hand that wrote the writing on the wall. So was that a literal hand or was that probably the spirit of Adonai that they perceived as the hand, the parable? And this is the end of Babylon. When you see the writing on the wall with the hand, when the Holy Spirit says, time's up. I'm not going to contend with you anymore, Belshazzar. You've taken my holy vessels and you've used them for profane things, for partying, for getting drunk for your sexual immorality, you're passing around here at your party because you think that the prophecy that I will restore my people to my land in 70 years has not come true. Guess what? Your mouth was bad because it's over tonight. So it signifies a heavenly judgment on kingdoms who do not walk in that cloud of faithful witnesses. Notice there was also a seat there, uh, a seat of jealousy that Ezekiel saw. But that throne of the idol of jealousy, it was actually in Jerusalem. And at different times in history, it has provoked um, rivalry to the Lord of hosts because the proper seat there is that which is prepared lovingly by the daughters of Jerusalem. And they love the word of God. They love what's in that ark. They love the holy word. And they adorn this holy city and the temple with obedience that is golden. Realize how much gold was in that area? So there's seven types of gold, and that's what we'll finish up with. Um, Second Chronicles 3, 5 says, this too refers to the temple and comports with that which we learned, for the entire sanctuary was plated with gold except the area behind the doors, as it is written, and he covered it, the sanctuary building, with good gold. Right? So we're, we're seeing a transition here from the gold of the Mishkan, this, 
this flying chariot that's being steered to the wilderness, now it diverts our attention back to the temple, this permanent seat. And it says that King Solomon covered it with good gold, good gold. So now let's think the same paradigm. There's seven different types of gold. Right here it says covered in good gold. Where's the first mention of gold? The Garden of Eden. So it says the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers or four heads, actually. So we can see the movement there of those rivers going round and round and round the tree of life in the center of the garden. But what we're interested in at this point is not so much the rivers. We're interested in what's inside those rivers. Because Yeshua already told us at Sukkot that he is the river, right? Come to him, he'll give you water. What or who is inside those rivers? The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Chavilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The delium and the onyx stone are there. So the gold is good. Our first mention of gold is good. <laughs> That's the part where y'all answer. <laughs> All right. So if this gold is good, doesn't it make sense that all the gold that we would read about is good? Just like there's one Holy Spirit, even though there's six other manifestations of that spirit. If the gold of the garden is good, it's possible that those seven types of gold simply represent our transformation as we're on this journey. Because as we go through this journey, we get treated different ways. Sometimes it feels pretty good. Other times it doesn't feel so good. So we've been deconstructing those seven types of gold in the Torah class. The one type of gold, uh, I like the dancing gold a lot. I thought the dancing gold was pretty cool. And the gold of Parvaim is just simply fascinating. But I want to look at the slaughtered gold, which I believe is a, a direct reference, taking us back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. It's called Shachut gold. Shachut. And it's called shachut because you could draw it out like wax. You, remember, you ever seen them pulling taffy? How I just kind of do that? Or maybe you can do it a little bit with a, with a Twizzler. Not long, probably. But <laughs> the gooier the candy, the easier it is to just kind of pull it out. It was very soft gold. It was very malleable. And you could fashion it into anything you wanted. Shachut comes from shachat, which means slaughtered. The process of kosher slaughtering an animal is called shachita, shachita. If you've ever seen a shachita knife, 
you know, it's got a unique form to it, but it's often they'll even microscopically examine the blade on it to make sure it doesn't have any nicks in it that would tear the animal because you can't tear the animal as you're uh, slaughtering it. But they think it's called this because the way that you had to draw out the animal's neck, you okay, Tim? Okay. In order to slaughter it, <laughs> what is the easiest kosher animal to slaughter, by the way? A giraffe. <laughs> if you miss it on that one, <laughs> you, you got very poor aim. <laughs> I don't know anybody who's ever kosher slaughtered a giraffe or eaten one, but I think technically they were they fulfill the requirements of a kosher animal. Uh, they chew the cud and they've got the, the split hooves. As far as I know, there might be a reason nobody slaughtered it. There might be something that, that disqualifies them. But they say drawing out the neck for the sacrificial slaughter is why it's called drawn out gold. Because when you acquire the quality of this kind of gold, it's because you've done like Isaac did in our Torah portion. You submitted yourself to the slaughter. Because at some point you realize Isaac's not a victim here. He knew something was up when he asked, Father, <laughs> I see the wood. <laughs> I see that. Okay, we've got fire. We've got everything, but we don't have an animal. And I don't see a lot of animals running around here. I think he knew at that point he was the animal. He was the slaughter. And he went on. And then he had to stand there while his father bound his hands. You don't think he knew something was up? And yet he lays himself on that altar and I'm sure stretches out his neck to make it easier on his dad. That's drawn out gold. That's not a victim. That's not somebody screaming because they've been done wrong one more time. That's somebody who says, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. He understood who his father was. Did he understand he was one of the horsemen? I don't know. Did he understand he would father a horseman? I don't know. Did he understand everything in that moment that was being promised? I don't know. Do we ever understand everything in the moment we stretch our necks out for slaughter? When we look back on our lives and we made some sacrifice, did we really understand all the good it would do years later? Probably not. We understood there was a reason. We understood there was a very good reason to allow ourselves to be slaughtered. But I don't think we understood everything. We just knew we had to be soft and malleable to the will of the Father, that we weren't going to make him stretch our necks out because he won't. This is a voluntary sacrifice. He will only slaughter us if we voluntarily stick out our necks. That's the type of gold that each of these patriarchs was. In each way, they stretched their necks out for us, for people they'd never met yet. And that's the question. Are we willing to stick our necks out and be slaughtered all day long? Is what the scripture says. We are slaughtered all day long. But look where they go. First Kings 10, 17. He made 300 shields of beaten gold. That's Zahab Shachut. That gold had been slaughtered using three minas of gold on each shield, and the king put them in the house of the timber of Lebanon. That's the temple. They were willing to be shields for somebody else. They knew that their sacrifice would be a shield for someone else. And look at the threes. Not just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but look at resurrection as the number three. 
Second Chronicles 9.15, he made 300 shields of beaten gold, Zahav Shachut, using 300 shekels of gold on each shield, and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Lebanon is a euphemism, by the way, for the temple. So when we read the Amidah, the first benediction of the Amidah is Magain Abraham, the shield of Abraham. Now do you see the shields of Abraham in the temple? See the resurrection in the temple? That first is the slaughter, and then there's the resurrection. This is what we get from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Abraham, he's, he was like us. He had to be called out of the place he was in and taken to a new place that he had never been before. But it was home. Isaac stretched out his neck on a sacrificial altar. Jacob allowed himself to be taken to literal Lebanon, mistreated in the house of Levan in an exile. And then when he decides to go back, he has to fight all night with an angel so that his descendants could be resurrected and be restored to that land he was trying to cross back into. And if these are our examples, if these are the horsemen of Israel, if these are our fathers and these were our mothers, if we're guided by the Holy Spirit, if we're walking in the shield, the faith of Abraham, then we're going to be slaughtered gold day by day. We're going to have to stick our necks out. We're going to have to go places we've never been. We're going to have to agree to stretch our necks out rather than waiting for him to pull them out. And then we're going to have to be willing when the time comes to listen to the Holy Spirit and go back to that land of promise. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.